0: Don't you hate it when you hear a good sermon and somebody that you know needs it, isn't there? I mean, you hear a sermon on lying and you think, ah, why wasn't Sam there? He's always stretching the truth. Or you hear a sermon on humility and you think, where was Sally? She's one of the most arrogant people I know. You you hear something on judgmentalism and you think, well, I wish Bill had been there. He's the most judgmental person I know. Well, I'm sure that if you have not said those words, they probably have been in your mind. I wish I could say they've never been in my mind, having preached a sermon. I think probably the people in the church at Rome might have been tempted to think like that, at least some of that congregation, when Paul's letter that was written to them was read aloud. We've been studying through Romans here for the last several weeks, and Whenever I introduced the letter to us, I made note of the fact that the congregation was made up of people from Jewish backgrounds as well as from Gentile backgrounds, which means that there would have been members of that church that had come from religious and moral backgrounds, the Jews, and those that had come from very worldly, irreligious and pagan backgrounds, which had been from the Greek and Roman culture. Last week, as we finished our study of Romans chapter one, we noted what Paul had to say about the horrific kinds of sin that seem to spread in pagan cultures where there's no real morality, where immorality just seems to go rampant. And noted on that occasion how God gives up cultures, gives up people to their immorality whenever they want no thought of him. And they keep putting him out of their minds and resisting the things that he has revealed. God manifests his wrath against people by giving them over to the very sins that they find so attractive. And it's as if God just removes the boundaries and people keep pressing up against the fences of immorality until he finally says, "Okay, I'm going to let you go further they keep pushing they keep pushing he says okay I'm going to let you go further three times in romans chapter 1 the second half of that chapter in verses 24 26 and 28 you read that phrase god gave them up he delivered them up in doing so he's manifesting his judgment that is a way that god judges people and societies by giving them over to their sinful inclinations not restraining them any longer just look at romans 1 if you've got a copy of the bible there in front of you it's found on page 939 and and look at these three places in romans 123 paul says that people exchange the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and then in verse 24 He says, therefore, because people did this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And what's he say then in verse 26 immediately? Therefore, because they did this, they kept doing this, God, for this reason, God gave them up. To dishonorable passions. You look at verse 28. Paul says since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind. To do what ought not to be done. You know I can imagine that as this part of the letter was read. When the church at Rome gathered together. They were all excited because they heard Paul the apostle has sent us a letter. And so they're there ready to hear what the apostle has to say to them. I can imagine that Jewish background portion of the church listening to these words and saying, man, I wish Junia was here. I wish Claudius was here. They and their Gentile family, they need this stop. That's the kind of life they've lived. They need to understand exactly what God thinks about this blatant immorality. You see, the Jews didn't deny the existence of God. They acknowledged God. The Jews had been schooled on the law of God. And they were very careful to condemn sexual immorality, especially the extreme forms of sexual immorality that Paul mentions in Romans chapter one. So it's easy to imagine them with their morality sitting there listening to, The first three or four minutes of this letter being read saying, "Mm mm-hmm, that's right. I understand that. Wish Claudius was here to hear it, but I wish this thing would be made known to more pagans. Well, had you been there, and you've been one of those Jewish background believers, having been raised with morality, knowing what's right, what's wrong, you would have easily said, as perhaps many of you did last Sunday, yes, that type of blatant sexual immorality is wicked. No wonder God judges such people. You would have heard these last few verses of Romans 1 read and perhaps just said, yes, we get it. No wonder, as the last verse of Romans 1 says, though they knew God's decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do these things, but they give approval To those who practice them. I think it would have been pretty easy. For religious people. Moral people. In the church at Rome. To say amen. Amen. Those Gentiles need to hear that. But. If you keep reading. If they kept listening. What always happens. Would have happened. They would have heard. The Apostle Paul's words read from what we have in chapter two of our Bibles and would have realized what Paul is saying about God's judgment doesn't just apply to those blatantly immoral people. It applies to religious people, to moral people as well. Today, we're going to do exactly that by looking at chapter two of Romans, and we're going to focus in on the first 11 verses of this chapter to see what it is that God's Word tells us about the judgment of God, not just against the irreligious and blatantly immoral people of the world, but what God's Word says about judgment against moral people, those who count themselves religious. Our text is found on page 940 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you. I encourage you to get a copy of Scripture in front of you and follow along. I'm just going to walk through it and try to point out the things that are said here so that we can understand what it is the Lord is saying to us on this occasion. So follow along with me as I begin reading from Romans chapter 2 in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. for Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God will judge you as well as everyone else on the last day. That's Paul's point here in this portion of his letter. He wants to make sure that everybody understands that no matter how religious or irreligious you've been, how moral or immoral you might be, the day is coming when every one of us will stand to give an account to our creator. Paul is concerned in this letter to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he announces the theme of the letter in verses 16 and 17 of chapter one. We looked at that weeks ago. He describes there that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Greek. Because in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God from faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Having announced that this is what the whole letter is about. Immediately in verse 18 of chapter one. Paul begins to describe God's wrath being manifested against sin. And from 1.18 all the way down to chapter 3 verse 20. He expounds this doctrine of sin. The universality of sin. The wickedness of sin. How sin deserves to be judged by God. It deserves God's wrath. In chapter 1 that last half. Paul is making certain. To explain how people who think. Oh but I didn't know. we didn't have the the law of God. I'm not religious. How such people are without excuse. Because God's made himself known in creation. And God has manifested himself to everybody. Today what we see beginning in chapter 2. Is Paul begins to address. Not the people who can say. But we didn't know. He addresses the people who think. Who think. We're not like them. We're not that bad. We hadn't done those kinds of things. And he wants to make sure that those of us who might be in that category hear, yes, but we too must give an account for our unrighteousness. The wrath of God, verse 18 of chapter 1 says, is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And there are some people who think, well, because I'm not unrighteous like those folks. I get a pass. Well, after this morning, studying through Romans 1, Romans 2, 1 through 11, I hope nobody leaves here thinking that you get a pass. Because God has promised that he will judge you just like he will judge everyone else. There are three points that the Apostle Paul makes in these 11 verses that support This conclusion, this this main point that judgment is coming from God upon all people. Everybody will stand to give an account before God. Let me point out these three ways that Paul makes his case. The first is in verses 1 through 3. He teaches us there that your judgment of other people means condemnation of yourself. When you judge other people, you condemn yourself or you put yourself in the position of being liable to judgment you notice what he does in those first three verses? He turns the argument personally. He identifies a, a, an individual, not a real person, but a symbolic person, a figurative person that represents these moral people in the church. People can say, well, I'm not like that. I've never done that. I get it that God gets mad at people like that, but that's not me. And so he addresses this Symbolic person. You see, he says, Oh man, therefore you have no excuse. Oh man. His intent is to remove from the moralists in a church any false hope that because their sins are not exactly like those who are blatantly immoral, that they're okay. And having removed that hope, he's going to then show us throughout this letter how the only salvation for anybody, whether you're religious or not, Is Jesus Christ. That you need what God has done in Christ, no matter how good you might think you are, or no matter how bad you know you are. When you disapprove of evil, you need to be sure to understand that that disapproval does not make you righteous. The fact that you identify evil and you disapprove evil does not make you righteous. It is right to make proper judgments. It's right to say something that is in violation of God's commandments, that's wrong. And something that is in keeping with God's commandments, that's right. Moral judgments are essential if we're going to live in God's world. And making judgments is important, necessary. But Understand when you make a judgment, you are in essence judging yourself. How's that work? When you make a judgment, you're saying there's a standard. That's right. Well, there's a standard in your mind. That's wrong. There's a standard in your mind. That's good. That's bad. There's a standard in your mind when you make that kind of judgment. So when you make a judgment, you know what you're doing? You're saying, there's a standard that I have to meet as well. You know, it's so much easier to see everybody else's failures than it is our own, isn't it? What Paul wants us to understand is that whenever you judge, you condemn yourself in the sense that you put yourself under a standard. It's a real dilemma. Because if you condemn the attitudes and actions of other people then by that very judgment, you're saying my attitudes and actions must meet a standard. You make yourself accountable. You put yourself under the standard that you understand for your judgment. Well, some people get this. And so they decide, hey, (laughs) judge not lest you be judged. I think that's the only verse some people know in all the Bible. You know, judge not, lest you be judged. I'm not, I'm not going to judge. Uh, not me. I'm not going to judge. You know, Somebody kills somebody. Uh, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not making any judge. Not me. Well, what happens if that's you? Well, look at the last verse of chapter one. Not only do you know what God's decree says, that people who practice such things deserve to die, but not only do you do them yourself, you give approval to such people. So you just think that by saying I'm not going to judge that you're off the hook. Nope. You are brought into the same camp as the people of Romans 132. You're approving. By refusing to condemn what is evil, you are approving it. So it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. When you make judgments, you're saying there's a standard and you put yourself in a place of obligation to meet that standard. When you don't make judgments, then you're saying, hey, you know, I, I'm just going to approve. I'm not going to say anything bad about anything. And you fall under the judgment of Romans one You're condemned if you judge. You're condemned if you don't judge. In other words, you're liable. Every one of us is liable to the judgment of God. In verse 1, Paul says, you practice the same thing. So you judge people, but you do the very things against which you complain and you judge. This doesn't mean necessarily that the people are engaging in the exact same sexual immorality that Paul describes in chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. He's not thinking about these moral Jewish people in Rome who would have had nothing to do with that type of outward activity. They would have always condemned it. but probably. By accusing them of doing the same thing, he's thinking about what he says at the last part of chapter one. If you just look at those verses where he describes in verse 29 through 31 being covetous, having malice, envy, deceit, gossips, slanderers, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless. Who escapes that? Who could say, oh, no, not me, on that short list. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 8, Jesus makes very clear that God's standard of judgment, his law, his commandments, have never been only concerned with external activity. God has never been concerned with just what you do outwardly. He's not given us his law so that we will conform to this list of rules in behavior alone. Jesus makes it plain in the Sermon on the Mount. God has always been concerned with righteousness in the heart. He's not just concerned what you do with your hand, what you think in your head, what you desire from your heart. So it's not just wrong. To murder somebody physically. It's also a violation of his commandment. When you murder someone in your heart. It's not just wrong to commit physical adultery. Or sexual immorality. It's also wrong. Whenever you lust. After another person. So Paul here wants to make crystal clear to those who regard themselves as moral, and can honestly say, we've not done those things, I'm not engaged in that behavior. Paul wants to make sure that they are thinking rightly about the very standard that they're using to make their judgments. We should never forget what James writes about this very point in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what James says. He says, whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Can you imagine that? If You did everything right. Except at one point. You know what that makes you? A lawbreaker. You shattered all of God's commandments. He goes on in verse 11. He said, for he who said, God do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So I hadn't slept with my neighbor's wife, but I have lusted in my heart. They're not the same thing, but they both violate the seventh commandment. That's the point. You see, Paul's going after moralists. He's going after people like probably most of us in this room that have religious impulses, religious background, who have been trained about what's right and wrong, good and bad, and who are willing to say amen, everything he writes about in chapter one. Oh, that's horrible. But he wants to make sure that we're not blinded to our own standing before him. Because when we condemn others, we are putting ourselves Under that same standard by which we offer our judgment. And that standard is God's law that requires righteousness. Not just in what we do. But in what we are. What we feel. What we say. How we think. So no matter what the particular obvious sins are in your life. The fact is that each one of us here today, no matter how religious or irreligious, no matter how moral or immoral, each one of us is a sinner in and of ourselves. Each one of us is unrighteous before God. Each one of us needs righteousness because God requires it. This is why Paul goes on to say in verses two and three, you cannot escape God's judgment. Verse 2, we agree that God justly judges lawbreakers. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That, that's correct. He said, Everybody acknowledges this who has any standard of righteousness having been trained in God's commandments. But God will judge us for our lawbreaking too, no matter how loudly we condemn the unlawfulness of other people. This is the inescapable conclusion. It's why he makes this point with a rhetorical question as he goes on. And he says, do you suppose, oh man, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? His point is no, no way. No way. You, you see their sin, you condemn their sin. That's right and good. Do you realize that you're a sinner too? The law that you see so clearly that they have violated, you violate as well maybe not in the same way maybe not in such obvious ways but you don't escape the reality that God has set a standard that he requires of all people and you do not meet it he wants us to feel the weight of our situation as sinners in this world whether you are a person who's really good at respectable sins or whether you're a person that just doesn't really think about it and so all your sins are in the open, out there, easily identified, easily condemned. God will judge, as he says, all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, whether religious people or irreligious people. You remember the story that's told in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David is king. It's the spring of the year. His armies have been sent out to battle against the Ammonites. David stayed home. And he had looked in the previous chapter at a woman that belonged to another man. The wife of Uriah. He saw that she was beautiful. He watched her as she was taking a bath. And because he was king and he could, he took her for himself. He committed adultery with her. And when it turned out that she was pregnant, that the baby was going to be born out of this liaison and her husband's been fighting the king's battles, David sent for Uriah and had him come back so he'd sleep with his wife and hopefully could pass off the child as Uriah's. Uriah was too honorable of a man to do that. He comes back and his fellow soldiers are fighting, so he just sleeps on the doorstep of his home. And so David writes a note, puts it in Uriah's hand to take back to the commander and tell him, put Uriah at the most vicious point of the battle and then pull back. In other words, assassinating. Which is what happened. Uriah died. David thinks, solve that problem. So a year or two later, God sends a prophet named Nathan to go to David. And he tells David a story. He says, O king, there were two men living in a city. One of them was rich, and he had lots of herds, lots of flocks. And another was poor, and he just had one little ewe lamb. And this ewe lamb was so precious to him. He nurtured it. He raised it. He fed it from his table. Gave it food from his own table. He took his own cup and let the lamb drink from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms. He said, that lamb was like one of his own daughters. And a visitor comes to the rich man. And the rich man wants to feed him. And rather than taking from his own flock or herd, He goes and he takes that poor man's one little lamb, slaughters it, and serves it up to his guest. Nathan tells David this story, and you can read in 2 Samuel David's response in verse 5. His anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. He condemned what was wrong. He saw it clearly. Crystal clear. How could anybody do that? Nathan looked at him. He said, oh, king, you are the man. We see other people's sins clearly. What Paul is telling us is that the very fact that we do. Condemns us. When we also sin. David saw it. David's eyes were opened in that moment. You see, it doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how quickly and accurately you condemn the sins of other people. It won't do you any good. (coughs) You will not be able to say justly, I thank God I'm not like those homosexuals. I thank God that I'm not like those murderers. I thank God that I'm not like this. You see, that's the whole point of the parable that Jesus told that Don read to us from Luke 18. That guy didn't go home justified before God. He was moral. Probably everything he said was true. What he was blinded to was his own sin. He was blinded to the fact that as he looked down upon this known sinner, the same standard that defines sin condemned him that's what paul doesn't want us to miss god requires righteousness no matter how good you are no matter your background no matter how many things you've avoided in your life the righteousness god requires you can't deliver i can't deliver Sin has come in and it has tainted everything in me. My thoughts, my desires, my actions, my inactions. And yet, God doesn't lower His standard of righteousness that He requires. You know, when you come to see yourself as that publican did in Luke 18... As the sinner who needs mercy. It's then that you're getting on good ground to receive from God what you need and what he supplies. But it'll only happen when you get on that ground. It'll only happen when you come to acknowledge, I am the sinner. Forget about the publican. I got to deal with my sin. I need righteousness. Friend, if you've sensed that, you believe that, there's good news for you. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world precisely to provide for you the kind of righteousness that He requires that you can't deliver. And your hope is not to try to do better. Your hope is not to keep looking at people that you think are worse than you. Your hope is to look to God for mercy. Mercy me. And trust His Son, the Lord Jesus. So that he will accept you for Jesus' sake. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's writing about in this whole letter. You know, David came to this point. After Nathan said, you're the man. And explained to him what he'd done. And explained the judgment of God that would come upon him. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan pronounced forgiveness. The Lord has also put away your sin. You will not die. Have you ever confessed your sin to God that way? So that you're the only one in the room. You're not thinking about who's not here to hear this sermon. You're just thinking, Lord, this is true. Here's my life. I can't give you what you require. Mercy to me. I'm a sinner. If God brings you to that point, that's great news. That is great news. That's how he saves people. That's how he makes people receptive to the one way of salvation that he provides in his son, Jesus Christ. And so I just want to exhort you, encourage you this morning. If you're here and you've had those thoughts and you've come to see that this is the way God actually judges people. And this is the standard. I don't meet it. If that's you, friend, trust Jesus right now where you are. Believe Jesus Christ because God sent him into the world to save sinners like you, like me. And as you renounce your sin and entrust yourself to Christ, he accepts you. He receives you. He credits the righteousness of Jesus to your case. And Jesus' death for sin becomes your payment. Your judgment of others means condemnation on yourself. But not only that, Paul goes on to explain, secondly, God's forbearance does not mean you have escaped divine judgment. Don't think that because God doesn't immediately bring negative consequences for your sin, that somehow that means he is okay with you. The Lord isn't upset with you. Some people reason that way. Well, I know what I did was wrong, but, you know, the good Lord didn't strike me dead. Right? As if that's comfort. Their thinking must not be that bad. All this talk about judgment. Yeah, really not that serious. Well, What's going on when God doesn't immediately strike you dead for your sin? What's going on is not that your sin is not that bad. What's going on is God showing how good and kind he is. He's showing how patient and merciful he is. Do you see this? In verse four, Paul uses another rhetorical question. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's abundantly kind. That's what's going on. I mean, you know what? (laughs) You know, if God gave us what we deserve in this room right here, right now, we'd be having this church service in hell. Okay? That's what we deserve in and of ourselves, apart from his provision, that's what we deserve. Well, why are we not in hell? Why are you not in hell? If you've never trusted Jesus, why are you not in hell? Because God's being kind. He's patient. He's forbearing with you. That's what this text says. He's abundant in kindness. Do you see the riches of his kindness? The fullness of his kindness. He's dealing with you in forbearance. That word means to hold back. It's it's like this onslaught of judgment and God is holding it back because he's forbearing with you. He's being patient with you. He's enduring with you. Why? Why would God do that? Why would he keep you alive? Why would he not just go ahead and kill you? Why? Because God displays his kindness in order to lead you to repentance. He's inviting you to repent every breath you take, every beat of your heart, every sunrise. It's another invitation from God. Turn to me. Come to me. Believe me. Receive the salvation I provide. God's kindness is designed by God to lead you not to conclude. Eh, he must not be too upset. To lead you to repent over your sin against him. We need to regularly stop and think about this fact that God is good to us and he's good to us to lead us to repentance. Brothers and sisters, that's true for us too. I mean, our sins we commit after being Christians are just as damnable as the sins we committed before we were Christians. We have a savior. Praise God, Jesus is a savior for every last one of our sins. But when we think about our sin as sin, we deserve Everlasting damnation. And God in his kindness gives us opportunity to repent. And as Christians, we should be living lives of repentance. We should not only be known as believers, we should be known as repenters. People who acknowledge, yes, yes, when I said that, I shouldn't have said it. When I, when I did that, I shouldn't have done it. And yes, that was wrong. This was right. And quickly admit what is true. Because we have a savior. And God in his kindness is leading us to repent. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to provide the righteousness that God requires. He did it by his life of obedience. He came to pay the penalty that sin deserves. He did that by his death on the cross and by his life and by his death. He provides the salvation that we receive as we repent of our sin, renounce it and entrust ourselves wholly to him. If you're not repenting, at least this morning, I hope you, you will acknowledge that God's kept you alive so that you will repent. And I want to do more than that. I want to plead with you. I want to beg you. Repent now. Why won't you? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you acknowledge what God says is true? And turn away from that and just submit yourself to his mercy and acknowledge it's true. God's kept me alive all these years. He's been so good to me. He's given me relationships. He's given me blessings. And I've been living in indifference to him. Oh, friend, it's because God is calling you to repent. He's calling you to be reconciled to him. So be reconciled today. You don't have to jump through a hoop. You don't have to do some kind of religious ritual. Turn from your sin. Believe right now where you are. As you sit there, confess Jesus Christ is your Lord. He will accept you. He will forgive you. He'll grant you righteousness. If you fail to understand what Paul's saying here, that God's kindness is designed to lead you to repentance, then you need to understand your lack of appreciating this is due to your own spiritual dullness. Do you see what he says in verse 5? He calls our hearts hard and impenitent. Stiff, unrepentant, the result of living in this kind of ignorance about why God's keeping us alive when we shatter his commandments. The result of that is spiritual hard heartedness. But there's also something else that is resulting from that that is not so obvious. There's something going on with every breath you take living in unrepentance. Paul puts it like this in verse five. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know what an automatic deposit is? Some of you young people may not know that yet, but most of you who are adults will, right? You can talk to your employer in most cases and just ask them rather than giving you a check that you take and have to cash you just They just deposit money into your account automatically. So you don't even see it. It just shows up there on your statements where you go to see how much money you got. You can also have your employer to take a portion of your check and put it into like a an IRA or, or some kind of savings account. And so you get the portion of your check every month or every pay period that you use to pay your bills. But then there's a portion that just gets put away and you can forget about it. You live without it. You're not thinking about it, but every pay period, a deposit's being made. And you know what happens? You can forget about that for decades, but when you go to cash out, you know, look how much has accumulated. It's a great thing. That's what Paul's talking about with God's wrath. When we live day by day in unrepentance. You may not think about it. You may think, well, I didn't die today. You know, God must not be too mad at me today. Paul says, no, you're just making another deposit. Another deposit, not into an account that will pay you money at the end, but into an increasing amount of God's wrath being stored up for your sin. And on the day you cash out, it's going to be horrific. It's going to be horrific. Why in the world would you live one more moment without repenting of your sin? He's kind. He gives us every day. He gives us good gifts. He keeps our hearts beating to lead us to repent. If you've never repented before, repent now. Christian, repent of your sin now. Live. In repentance, don't store up wrath for the day of wrath. Your judgment of others means condemnation on yourself. Secondly, God's forbearance does not mean you have escaped divine judgment. Finally, the third part of Paul's argument found in verses 6-11. through God will impartially judge everyone. He's going to judge everybody. And it will be with perfect justice. These verses are written in what is called a chiastic form. A chiasm is a literary form that's designed to highlight certain points or certain ideas. And it does it by making the points in parallel at the beginning and then at the end, toward the middle, toward the latter part of the middle. And so there are three points in these six verses that are made. One point about God. Two points about the people whom God will judge. And you can just see it like this. The first point about God is made in the first statement in verse 6 and the last statement in verse 11. And then he makes statements about the people he will judge in verses 7 and 10 who will be acquitted, who will be forgiven and saved. And then in verses 8 and 9 about the people who will be eternally damned. Let's look at these three points as they are written out for us in this chiastic structure. He tells us that first, God will justly judge everyone according to our works. You see this verse six, verse 11, verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. Notice according to not for, not for God's not going to call us together on the day of judgment and say, okay, let me see how much you got. Ah, you didn't make it. Sorry. That's not it. We're not talking merit here. We're talking evidence, evidence. He will judge us according to our works. What kind of lives have we lived? Salvation is always by God's grace through faith plus nothing else. But the faith that saves always results in a life of works. It's an important distinction to make and to see in the Bible. This is why James says what he does in James 2. That faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Then he goes on in verse 18 and says, I will show you my faith by my works. That's what true faith does. It works. And it becomes evident. And then in verse 26 of that chapter, James says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it will result in a life of obedience to God's commandments. Not perfectly, but intentionally. This is the obedience of faith that Paul writes about in the very first part of Romans. And he'll write about again at the very end of Romans. The faith that results in a life of seeking to live according to God's will. Doing good. Good works. Not so he will accept us, but because he he has accepted us. You look at verse 11. God will make this judgment on the day of judgment. With no partiality. Literally, he's not going to look at a person's face and say, oh, oh, yeah, I know you. Okay. Oh, you're from this family. Okay. No. He puts a bag over everybody's face. He just looks at what has been done in their lives. Is this a life that demonstrates true faith because it's resulted in obedience? Or is this a life, no matter what it's professed, has lived in disobedience? No partiality with God. You know, you might have been treated. You have been, no doubt. All of us have been treated with partiality, good and bad. You know, you may have gotten stuff you didn't deserve because of who you know or your family. And you probably were mistreated because of who you know or your family. But on that day, no partiality. On that day, God's judgment will be just. In verses 7 and 10, we see how he will judge believers. God will render eternal life to believers. Notice how they're described in these two verses as people who patiently engage in well-doing. This is an orientation of life. This is people who live differently because they've been made different by Jesus Christ. They seek glory, honor, and immortality. Again, these are not attainments that people get in this world so that when God sees us at the end, says, okay, you made it. I'm going to save you. That's not at all. Rather, it's direction, aspiration of life. The glory that's described to us in Jesus Christ that God has for His people with Him. We aspire to that. The honor that goes with knowing God as our Father. We aspire to that. The immortality, living spirit and body forever with God. We aspire to that. We patiently pursue that. Verse 10, he says, Those who do good, life lived For God's glory according to his will. Jew first, also the Greek. What's that? No partiality. No partiality. Jews, Gentiles, religious, irreligious, moral, immoral. Everybody's going to be judged without partiality. What will God render to these people? Look at verse 7. He calls it eternal life. In verse 10, he uses language. that's almost parallel with what he says in verse 7. That we aspire to glory, honor, and peace. That's what awaits the people of God who are trusting Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. There, our eternal life that we have now will be forever validated. There, the honor and the glory that we have aspired to, that we've tasted in Christ, that we long for, it will be ours in fullness. There will be peace forevermore with God and with one another. That's what's coming to those who are in Christ. Well, what about Those not in Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. God will render wrath and fury to unbelievers. See how they're described in verse 8? Self-seeking. They do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. Verse 9, he just summarizes it. Those who do evil. Jew first, also the Greek. No partiality. Those who live for themselves. Those who don't care. They may profess that they know Jesus Christ. But you look at their lives. They're not concerned to live the way God calls us to live. What does the text say awaits them? What will God render to them? Verse 8, wrath and fury. Verse 9, tribulation and distress. We don't really need To expound upon those words, do we? It's God's judgment. Coming. With his wrath, resting upon impenitent sinners. For all of eternity. On that great day of judgment. This is how God will judge. And everybody will be judged that way. Whether you're religious or irreligious, moral or immoral. You're going to be brought to an account. Each one of us will stand before God. And depending upon whether or not we are in Christ or outside of Christ, we will receive this judgment. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world can that be? I mean, I get it how God can punish people for sin. That makes perfect sense. But pastor, you're saying that you can be a religious sinner or an irreligious sinner. And that it doesn't matter. So. Are you telling me that moral people don't go to heaven because they're moral? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Religious people don't go to heaven because they're religious. People go to heaven because they have a savior. And what we need is a savior. How can God let sinners into heaven? How can God give eternal life to people who have violated his commandments the way this text says everybody has? Well, that's what the whole book of Romans is about. Paul begins to explain it in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, when he describes for us the righteousness that is revealed from God, from heaven in Jesus Christ. You see, God requires righteousness. You and I don't have righteousness. And if we keep trying to relate to God on the basis of our own efforts to be righteous, then we will be judged eternally under his wrath as those who are rebels. But if like David, like that publican at the temple. You say, I'm the one who sinned. I've sinned against God. I need mercy. No excuse. And you look to God for mercy and you see God pointing to his son that he sent in mercy and grace to save sinners and you run to Jesus and you cling to Jesus by faith. Then you have eternal life. Glory, honor, peace forevermore. Not because you were religious, not because you weren't as immoral as others, but because there is a Savior and you're trusting Him. If you've never trusted Him before, trust Him now. God calls you to trust Him. Church, we need to be the kind of people who understand this and who live this way so that we don't go around pretending that somehow we've earned god's good favor but we realize we are people of grace well who do you wish was here today to hear this sermon well god intended for you to be here intended for me to be here intended for us to be together at this portion of study of god's word to consider these realities he intends it for each one of us To renounce every effort to make ourselves right with him on any basis other than Jesus Christ. And to live by faith in Christ in such a way that it will be very evident in our minds and our speech that we are living by God's grace, not by our own attainments. On the day of judgment, nobody will be able to give a legitimate excuse to God. Nobody will be able to say, but I didn't know. No, Romans 1 tells us everybody knows. Nobody will be able to say, but I wasn't as bad as them. No, everybody has broken God's commandments and needs righteousness. On that day, our only plea, our only hope will be Jesus Christ has come. He's lived. He's died for sinners. And I trust him as my Lord. That's our testimony. That needs to be what's on our lips regularly. That needs to be the message that we proclaim to Southwest Florida, brothers and sisters. There is a savior for sinners. He saved us. And he will save you. Let's pray together. Our father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and revealing truth to us. Sometimes truths that we wouldn't normally look at or want to consider. We thank you for speaking truthfully to us. We thank you for not letting us camp out in our morality with a sense that we're okay because we haven't sinned as badly as other people. Destroy those false ideas and cause us to cling to Christ. I pray for young people and children here today, for adults that have never turned from sin to trust Jesus. Would you not open their eyes today to see him? Draw them to him. Glorify yourself by magnifying Your grace in their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.